0: tempted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. God, I thank you for your word and for our church and for the book of Hebrews. I ask you, please give us all a tender heart to the message. I ask you, please read our passage tonight to strengthen them and fill them in their spirit. We love you. In Jesus' name pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there in Hebrews chapter number two. And of course, we've been going through a Bible study on Wednesday nights through the book of Hebrews. We're going verse by verse chapter by chapter, uh, through the book of Hebrews. And tonight we find ourselves here at the end of Hebrews chapter number 2. And just quickly to remind you and to kind of recap, if you remember in Hebrews chapter 1, there was a theme. We spent several weeks looking at Hebrews chapter 1, but the theme was the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And that was emphasized in Hebrews chapter 1, And then in Hebrews chapter 2, this is now the second sermon uh, in this chapter. It'll be the last sermon in this chapter. And if you remember last week, we went through verses 1 through 8, and we saw that there's a second theme in chapter 2, and that theme is the humanity of Christ. So what we saw in chapter 1 was the deity of Christ, and what we saw in chapter 2 was the humanity of Christ. And I won't take the time to go through... The first nine verses of the chapter, if, if you missed that, then I'd encourage you to check that out on our website and you can get caught up. But I do want to remind you that verses one through eight were pretty much kind of setting us up uh, for this idea of the humanity of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is spent eight verses giving some foundational thoughts and ideas uh, to bring us to these verses, verses nine through 18, uh, when we're going to look at this idea of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I think the Book of Hebrews is a perfect book to study on Wednesday night. Wednesday night, of course, is supposed to be our our Bible study. Although I don't, I'll let you in on a little secret. Pretty much every service is the same. Um, we we just go verse by verse through books of the Bible. I teach on at all the services. I preach at all the services. But Wednesday night is our Bible study night, and. Uh, and and this is a highly theological book, and it's kind of interesting. You know, it's hard to say that because every book in the Bible is a theological book, um, but some books are more practical than others. Some books are more narratives than others. This book, Hebrews, is very doctrinal, and especially at the beginning, I believe the writer of the book of Hebrews is the Apostle Paul, and it kind of seems like his style, where he spends half of the the first part of a book, laying down some doctrinal foundation, and then has more practical stuff at the end. There's definitely some practical stuff at the end, but this is highly theological, this idea of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, and tonight, I'd like you to notice three thoughts that the writer of Hebrews has for us uh, regarding the humanity of Christ, because you may not have given uh, the humanity of Christ a lot of thought, and oftentimes when we think of the doctrines of Christ, we often think about the deity of Christ and the fact that... Jesus was God in the flesh, and we know that the cults will fight that and, 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 and believe against that, but you may not have thought a lot about the humanity of Christ, but we need to remember that Jesus was just as much God as he was man. He was 100% God, and he was 100% man. You say, that doesn't make any sense. I can't compute that in my mind, but we accept it by faith. He was the God-man. He was God who became flesh and dwelt among us and there's a reason for that and there's actually three different thoughts or three different ideas that are set forth in this passage as to why what it is that Jesus accomplished through his humanity and why it is that he had to come down and become a man so I'd like you I'd like to highlight those for you if you notice there in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 We see this little phrase, and this is kind of a transitional phrase in the chapter, because he's been talking about Jesus up to this point, and really, even in chapter 1, he was talking about Jesus, of course, the entire time, but up to this point, he's been referring to Jesus as the Son, and he's been referring to Him by different titles and different ways, and here in verse 9, we see the first time the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned in the book of Hebrews, and he plainly says, but we see Jesus. I love that little phrase, we see Jesus. This will be a theme The book of Hebrews has all sorts of themes, and it'll be a theme we get back to at the end of Hebrews when he talks about that we should keep our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And here he says, but we see Jesus, the first time that the name is used in this book, and it'll be used 14 times in this book, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, if you remember chapter 1, we spent chapter 1 one of the an entire sermon on the subject of the angels and about the fact that Jesus was better than the angels. And this might seem a little bit like a contradiction because in chapter 1 he says Jesus was better than the angels, and then in chapter 2 he says that he was made a little lower than the angels. But the idea is that he was made lower than the angels in his humanity that he was made lower than the angels when he uh, was robed in flesh because we, human beings, are lower than the angels. And we talked about that last week, the fact that positionally God has put all things under the subjection of humanity, all things on this earth, and even angels are subject unto human beings and they are ministering servants. We talked about that last week. But regarding our person or power, we are lower than the angels. They are stronger beings, more powerful beings than we are. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Now, he was made lower than the angels when he became man, when he became human being. And his person, uh, he limited himself to the limitations of humanity. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, and we're going to come back to all of that here in a minute. But I'd like you to notice that the Bible is telling us here. And if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to jot some of these things down. Let me give you three points tonight regarding this idea of the humanity of Christ. And the first point is this: that through humanity, Jesus could connect. With mankind, through humanity. what we see in verses 9 through 13 is that the reason that Jesus became a human, the reason he became a man, the reason he came to earth uh, as a baby, was because it was needed and required. Jesus, through humanity, Jesus could connect with mankind. And what we're seeing here in verse nine is that he became a man. We see his humanity here in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. We'll talk about the death in a minute. Uh, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And we'll talk about his death in a minute, but I, I do want to just highlight this real quickly. And I'm not really preaching on this, but I want you to see it. The Bible says that, the last part of verse 9, by the grace of God should taste death. Notice these words, for death every man. You know what that tells us? That tells us that God is not a Calvinist. Jesus, the Bible tells us, he tasted death for every man. He was a sacrifice for every man. He paid the sin debt of every man. Of course, not every man is saved because they must choose to call upon Christ in faith for salvation, but every man has the option to be saved because Jesus tasted death for every man. But what we see here is the humanity of Christ, and with the humanity of Christ, comes this connection, and it's often connected throughout the Bible. When you see the humanity of Christ, you also see the humility of Christ. Look at verse 10. For it became Him. Now notice what it says. We're being told in verse 9 that we see Jesus, and when we see Jesus, we see Him made a little lower than the angels, and we see Him suffering for death. We see Him uh, tasting of death for every man. But the Bible says that when he became human, or when we see his humanity, we also see his humility because the Bible says, for it became him, verse 10, for whom are all things. See, the Bible tells us that for Jesus, the whom there, the him there, is referring to Jesus for, uh, if you remember, we talked about this in in Hebrews chapter 1. When you see the word whom, uh, you think of the word uh, of him, you can replace the word whom with the word him. And if you if you're ever often, if you ever confused about whether it's whom or who, uh, you replace whom with him, and you replace who with he. And the and and when you look at this passage here, it says, "For whom are all things?" We could say, "For him," referring to Jesus, are all things. And the idea is this: that all things are for Jesus. The Bible tells us in the Book of Revelations that we were made for His pleasure that all things were created for His pleasure. Here we're told, for whom are all things, notice, and by whom are all things. So here we see that everything was made for the pleasure of Jesus, and everything was made by Jesus. We talked about that in chapter 1, because Jesus is God. For whom are all things, and by whom are all things. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to bring this idea out that here you have God, in the flesh, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things. And God chose to become a human. We see his humanity. And in that, he chose to humble himself. We see his humility because for him all things were made, and by him all things were made. But yet, he chose to subject himself to humanity, to mortality, to the death even the death of the cross. Go, keep your place there in Hebrews 2. That's obviously our text for tonight. Go to Romans, if you would, in towards the beginning of the New Testament, Romans chapter number 11. And we've got, of course, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then the book of Romans, Romans chapter number 11. And look at verse 36. Let me just give you some cross-references so you can see this. Romans eleven thirty-six. 36. Notice what the Bible says here about God. And, of course, we know that Jesus is God in the flesh. Romans 11, For Of Him, the word of is a reference to the source, meaning it all comes from Him. For of Him, notice, and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's a wonderful verse. The Bible says that everything is of Him, everything is through Him, everything is to Him, everything is for Him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So we see the position of the Lord Jesus Christ in his deity and we see that in his humanity he also accepted humility because of the fact that he was made a little lower than the angels. We see that he was made and 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 brought down. He allowed himself to be brought down to the humanity, the humility of mankind. Go to Philippians. Keep your place in Romans. We're going to come back to Romans several times tonight. I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. So put a a ribbon or a bookmark or something there in the book of Romans, and then go to the book of Philippians if you would. Philippians chapter number two. If you're in Romans, you go past 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and past Galatians, past Ephesians into the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter two. Romans 1, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then the book of Philippians. We're seeing that he became man. We see his humanity, and then I'd like you to notice his humility. This is highlighted in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. You know these verses. They're well-known verses. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What is that? That's the deity of Christ. That's the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What does that mean? It means that when God, when Jesus made himself equal with God, when, when he made statements like, before Abraham was, I am, when he made himself equal with God, he was not robbing God or stealing from God or taking something from God that did not belong to him because he was God. So being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but... Verse 6, we see deity. Verse 7, we see humanity. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made, notice the humanity of Christ, in the likeness of men. Verse 8, and being found in fashion as a man, notice the words, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So we see that he became man. We see his humanity. And we see his humility. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, if you would. Keep your place in Romans and go back to Hebrews chapter 2. I'd like you to notice that in verse 10 we see why. In, 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 in verse 9, we saw his humanity and his humility. We saw that he became a man. In verse 10, we in verse 11, uh, and, and really verses 12 through, through 14 through, uh, through 13, excuse me, we see the reason for this. And the reason for this is this, he became man. He became man to reach man. That's pretty much it. I mean, that's the main emphasis. He became man to reach man. Now notice the relationship that we now have with Christ, that we now have with God in the flesh. Look at verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, that's his deity, in bringing, you say, why did he do it? Why would he do it? Here's why he did it. In bringing many sons unto glory. The purpose of Jesus becoming the second member of the Godhead, the Son of God, becoming flesh, being made of a woman, the reason for that is that He might bring many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, He became the captain of our salvation. He became our captain because He came down and He became a mediator between God and men. Look at verse 11. For both He, talking about Jesus, that sanctifieth, and they, who's the they there? That's you and I, that's us. Those who have become sons through the Lord Jesus Christ. For both he that sanctifieth, so there's one party, there's he that sanctifieth, and they whom are sanctified, notice what he says, are all of one. Now if you want to cross-reference for that verse there, all uh, that phrase there, all of one. You don't have to turn there, but you can just jot this down in your notes. I'll read this for you from Galatians 3:28. The Bible says, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus." We see that in Galatians 3:28. We are told that we, for the Galatian believers, are all one in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 2:11 says for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I want you to notice that. I want you to notice the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ is this that the Bible says that he is not ashamed to call them, the them that is referring to us, to call them brethren. The Bible says that Jesus calls us brethren. Now go back to Romans, if you would, Romans chapter number eight. And wouldn't that make sense? Since Jesus is the second member of the Godhead, we know that the first member of the Godhead is God the Father. We know that Jesus came to reveal the Father unto us, and He taught us about the Father. He told us to pray. He said when we pray that we should pray, Our Father which art in heaven. But Jesus, as the second member of the Godhead, which is the Son of God, and because we are adopted into the family of God, we are brought into the beloved, and we are all sons of God and children of God, what that makes Jesus is our brother. Now, he's not a brother like you're a brother. He's a way better brother than you are. <laughs> and he's a way better brother than I am. But he is our brother. Now, there's, he, he's the only begotten. He's the first begotten. There, there's a different status there. But the idea is this, that in, in heaven, we have the first member of the Godhead, our heavenly father, and then we have the second member of the Godhead, our heavenly brother. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ is our brother. Now, think about this. This goes against oneness doctrine. When the Pentecostal oneness group says, well, Jesus is, uh, is, is the same member. It's just one person. There aren't two different individuals or three different individuals. There's not God the Father that's a separate person than God the Son. It's just one guy who sometimes calls himself this and calls himself that. These verses wouldn't make any sense because the Bible says that his official title, obviously he's God in the flesh, he's co-eternal. We know, we understand all that. But in the same way that God, the first member of the Godhead, is our heavenly Father, the second member of the Godhead is our heavenly brother. The Bible says that he is not ashamed to call them, brethren. Look at Romans eight twenty nine, Romans chapter eight verse twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice what it says: that he might be, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see that Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. But he is our brother. And the relationship we have with him is that of brethren. Keep your place there in Romans. We're going to come back to it. Go back to Hebrews 2.11. I want you to notice there at the end of verse 11 that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's an interesting thought, that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother, to call you sister. And I can't help but think this, that if Jesus is not ashamed to call us If Jesus is not ashamed of us, then maybe we should not be ashamed of him. And if he's willing to identify himself with us as our brother, as our heavenly brother, then we should be willing to identify ourselves with him as well. What we then see in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, as we leave verse 11 and we head into verses 12 and 13, what we see is three different quotes about the Lord Jesus Christ And these quotes have to do with his brethren and with salvation, and they're quotes from the Old Testament. And I'll give you the cross references uh, so you can have them. The first quote comes from Psalm 22. Now, I'd like you to notice there, Hebrews 2:12. The writer of Hebrews says this: "Saying." Now, when he says "saying," he's he's gonna. The next thing he's going to do is quote. When he says "saying," he's telling us the Old Testament says this, or somebody in the Old Testament said this. In this case. The psalmist said this, and here's what the psalmist said, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, because remember, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, and then he's giving, because remember, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are ethnically descendants of Abraham. In the New Testament, first century uh, context, it's written to Jewish believers, they are saved. But they're a little confused about how we transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament and how we correlate the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, what he does is he brings up these quotes or he brings up these concepts and these principles, these doctrines, but then he backs them up with Old Testament teaching. To show them, hey, this isn't just something new, although it is new and it's in the New Testament. These things were referred to in the Old Testament. That's what he's doing and that's what he's proving. So he just got done saying, Jesus is your brother and he's not ashamed to call them brethren. And then he proves that from the Old Testament by saying, "Saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise unto thee. Now let's look at these Quote real quickly, go to the book of Psalms if you would, Psalm 22. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, and look at verse 22. Hebrews 2.12 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. I'd like you to notice Psalm 22 and verse 2, here's what's being quoted in Hebrews. Psalm 22 and verse 2, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, Will I praise thee? Now, I want you to notice that when you see a a quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament, oftentimes the quotes are not 100% matches. And you would think that, well, if if the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 22, wouldn't it just say the exact same thing? I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. Will I praise thee? But that's not what it says in Hebrews 2.12. It says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Now the reason for that, and I just want to take a moment to help you understand this, uh, there's a logical reason and there's a spiritual reason, and I'll explain both. The logical reason for the fact that the translation is not just word for word the same. uh, First of all, if you speak another language, uh, then you know that uh, oftentimes things don't get word for word translated from one language into another because there might be, different expressions or idioms or things um, uh, can get lost in the translation. Not that something is lost, not that the Word of God is lost in the translation, but you can't sometimes just use these exact same words because it won't make sense in a different language. But even more than that, what I want you to understand is when you and I are reading in our King James Bible, which is the inerrant, inspired, perfect, preserved Word of God, when we're reading the Old and New Testament, we're reading English versions... Of an Old Testament that was originally written in Hebrew, primarily written in Hebrew, also Aramaic and and, and different portions of it, small portions in different languages, but uh, primarily written in Hebrew. And then we have a New Testament that was written in Greek. So what we're reading, so what I want you to understand is that the writer of Hebrews is writing in Greek, quoting a Hebrew verse... So the writer in Hebrews is translating that verse from Hebrew into Greek and then quoting it in our New Testament. It's being translated from Hebrew into Greek. Then on top of that, for you and I to read it, that Hebrew text is translated into English. That Greek text is translated into English. So what we're really reading when we read Hebrews chapter number 2 and verse 12, saying, I will declare thy name unto thy brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. We're reading an English translation of a Greek New Testament that is translating a Hebrew Old Testament. So logically, that's why you don't see uh, just these, it's not like, the writer of Hebrews is, is, is just, you know, can just go, he's, write, he's typing in English and he's got an English Old Testament, he just copies and pastes, saying Psalm twenty-two, verse 22, copy and paste here. That's not how it happened, which is why you see that. That's the logical reason. Let me give you the spiritual reason. Why did God do that? Well, God is the creator of languages. Uh, if you remember, at the Tower of Babel, God is the one who gave us languages, He is the creator of languages. And I believe that one of the reasons that God allowed the Bible to be written in different languages and and for all these translations is because what we now have is the ability to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And the Bible can often become its own dictionary. The Bible can define for you what words mean. So whenever you translate, whenever you compare an, an Old Testament quote and a New Testament quote, And they don't match perfectly. Don't think to yourself, well, this is a problem and this is an issue. Think to yourself, this is God allowing the Word of God to be its own dictionary and we can learn something from this and God is trying to teach us. And here's a perfect, I go into all that. We could look at a lot of examples of this, but we have one right here. This is a perfect example of that because in Psalm 22 and verse 22, the psalmist wrote, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. But in Hebrews 2.12, the same verse is quoted and it says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. So what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn. The word church means congregation. A church is a congregation. And here, look, did you notice I did not have to go to any Greek word and explain any greek word to explain i can just use the king james bible and show you that the word church means congregation now if we wanted to go to the greek and talk about the word ekklesia and that means called out assembly whatever all that stuff matches as well but you don't even have to do that and you don't speak greek anyway and i don't speak greek but here we can just see that the word congregation means church and by the way a church is a congregation and listen to me. I am very excited about the fact that we're moving into this new building over there. And it's a beautiful building. It's going to be even more beautiful by the time we're done with it. It's going to be an amazing place. I think you're going to like it. You're going to be impressed. I think guests are going to show up and be impressed at, at how nice it is. But let me explain something to you. That building over there is not a church. Amen. And this building isn't a church. The church is you. Amen. The church is me. The church, We are the church when we come together, when we meet together. And oftentimes, and, and I'm not always... You know, 100%, uh, sometimes, I, I mess, sometimes I don't say this, but oftentimes when I refer to this building, I, I try not to call it the church. When I'm talking to the staff, I'll say, hey, can, can you go by the church building? Can you go to the building? Because this building is not a church. And you might be thinking like, well, I knew this building wasn't a church. Good night, it's sitting next to a methadone clinic. <laughs> okay, but, but look, but when we're over there and we have a building that has a beautiful steeple and beautiful Corinthian pillars, and 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 and, uh, uh, and 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 pillars, and 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 the high ceilings, and all those things. Just remember this: that building is not a church either. It's the church building. It's the church house. It houses the church. But never forget that the church is the congregation. And if we were meeting in a beautiful building, or if we were meeting under a tree, we would be a church, because the congregation, in the midst of the congregation, will I praise thee, in the midst of the church, will I praise thee. So you see this quote, and really the quote's not about that, it's just something we can learn. The quote is about the fact that the Bible says that the Bible says about Jesus, because he's our brother, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. That Jesus is going to declare his name unto my brethren. How is Jesus going to do that in the midst of the church? Do you know that Jesus is present with us right now? You know that Jesus is present with us every time? We have church. Whenever we have service here, I get text messages on my phone. It tells me what the attendance is. Tonight, we have a high Wednesday night attendance, which I'm thankful for. Praise God for it. According to the text message, we have 231 in church tonight. But the truth is this. There's 232. Because Jesus is here. And by the way, let me just say this. He's not here because there's 231 people here because when we used to meet in the living room and there were six of us, Jesus was there. Amen. Because in the midst of the church will I declare thy name unto you. I mean, and think about that. And by the way, let me just say this. The next time you plan on skipping church, you gotta ask yourself, I wonder what Jesus is doing. Because Jesus says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the church. You know, it's his church. He's the head of it. He builds the church. He died for the church. He paid for the church. It's his church. And here we're being told that when you and I meet together, when we meet together to sing praises, Jesus is there. And when Jesus is there, he says, I will declare thy name, God, to my brethren, when? In the midst of the church. Because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the house of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So we see that Jesus says, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. And then the, the, the proof text is this. I'll tell you why he's not ashamed to call them brethren, because he shows up to every church service. You know, Jesus is three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. I will declare thy name unto my brethren, is what Jesus says. When will will you declare your name, the name of God, unto your brethren, Jesus? In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Next time we sing praises, remember that Jesus is singing with you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what the Bible says. So we see a quote, the first quote, Psalm 22 and verse 22. Then there's a second quote. I'd like you to look at it quickly. Psalm 18 and verse 2. Now, you go to Psalm 18 and verse 2. Let me read to you from Hebrews 2.13. Hebrews 2.13, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. So here uh, we see that I will put my trust in him is a quote from Psalm 18 and verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. So we see that. For your notes, Hebrews 2.13, and again, the again there. He said, let me give you another quote, and again, I will who I trust in him. That's a quote from Psalm 18, verse 2, in whom I will trust. And then there's a third quote there in Hebrews 2.13 as well. That comes from Isaiah. I'm not going to have you turn there. You go back to Hebrews, uh, but I'll just read to you from Isaiah. There's a third quote. No, notice that there at the end of verse 13. And again, so we've got the third quote, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. I and the children which God hath given me, is a quote from Isaiah, if you want it for your notes, Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord host which dwelleth in Mount Zion. So I want you to notice that Jesus is not only our brother, the first begotten brother among many brethren, but he's our elder brother. He's our older brother. In fact, he's a lot elder than you and I because he's from Everlasting. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But he's our elder brother, so it, the situation between us and, and Jesus is kind of like some new IP families, you know? You, you, you were out in the world, and you had, you had your one or two kids, and then you got saved, and you started learning what the Bible says, and you realized that God wants to be fruitful and multiply, so then you had a bunch of other kids, but you got this gap, where you've got like the older kids and a bunch of little kids. Well, that's kind of how it is, like, God has this gap. There's Jesus, the older brother, and then all of us. And then Jesus, he's our brother, but he, said, he looks at us as children, and he says to God, Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. So he's like an older brother that's looking out for us. And he's caring for us, and he takes care of us. And he uses these terminologies, a quote from Isaiah 8.18, but it's an endearing terminology. Jesus looks at us and talks to God, and he says, Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. By the way, let me say this to you older siblings. Be nice to your, your younger siblings. Be like Jesus. He's nice to his younger siblings. So we see that he became human. He became man to reach man. We saw his humanity. We saw his humility. We saw our relationship to him. He's our elder brother. He's our heavenly brother. He's our everlasting brother. We see these quotes that he's not ashamed of us, and he will declare himself among us and with us. Go to 1 Timothy 2. If you're there in Hebrews, if you go backwards, you go past the book of Philemon, past the book of Titus, Pass the book of 2 Timothy into 1 Timothy. Now, you have your place in Romans, and I'd like you to continue to keep your place in Romans, but also keep your place in 1 Timothy. We're going to go back uh, to, to both of those in a little bit, and I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's just talk about this real quickly. The fact that Jesus could connect with mankind through humanity. He became human that he might connect with mankind. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, there's only one mediator. What does that mean? That means you don't need Mary. You don't need the Pope. You don't need, you don't need a priest. You don't need anybody to mediate between you and God. The Catholic Church calls Mary the mediatrix. That's blasphemous. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. Now, I want you to look at the verse. There's, there, there's several concepts being said here. There's one God, deity, and there's one mediator, go-between, between God and men. Who is the mediator? The man, Christ Jesus. Why is it that Christ Jesus could mediate, could be the go-between God and men. Here's why. Because he was the God-man. Because he was God and he was man, he could mediate between God and men. I'm not going to have you turn here for sake of time, but let me just read this to you from the book of Job. Job 9.32 says this, For he is not a man. This is Job speaking about God. And Job in the Old Testament is wishing that somebody would mediate on his behalf. He does not yet know the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, uh, and as well as we would know them. I and mean, he doesn't understand humanity, but here's what he says. For he is not a man as I am. This is what Job said. Job said, I need someone to go between me and God because God is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. And then he says this, Job 9:33, neither is there any daysman. The word daysman is an older archaic word we don't use it today, but it means a, a go-between. It's an arbiter. It's someone who referees or disputes. And and Job says, neither is there any daysman betwixt us. And Job is saying, between God and me, for he is not a man, God, as I am. And he says, because he is not a man and I am a man, there's no one, Job is saying, and he's wrong about this, but he's saying, there is not a daysman betwixt us that might lay, this is a terminology that Job uses, that might lay his hands upon us both. And what Job is saying is, I wish... He says, there's me and there's God. I'm a man... And he's deity, and Job is saying, "I wish there was a daysman. I wish there was an arbiter. I wish there was a go-between that could lay both his hands on God and his hands on man." And the idea is someone that could put, you know, uh, in, in, if you ever are trying to referee or or help somebody come to some sort of agreement, you might, you, as as a show of the fact that I'm for both of you, maybe you'll put your hand on on this person's shoulder and put your hand on this person's shoulder and say, "Hey, I'm here for you guys." And that's what Job is saying. Job is saying, "I wish." Was somebody who could put their hands on God and put their hands on man and, and be the, be, be the days men that would go betwixt us. And what Job did not understand that what he is asking for is the Lord Jesus Christ because there is one God and, 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 and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus in his humanity could both touch God and touch man Amen. and come between both and mediate on our behalf i gotta, I got to move quickly because I'm, I'm out of time and I'm only on point number one, but let me give you the point number two <laughs> real quickly. Right. Through humanity, Jesus could connect with mankind, verses 9 through 13. And through humanity, Jesus could conquer mortality, verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we see that Jesus took on the ability to die. Look at verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Remember, who are the children? We're the children. He says, because the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that's humanity, that's you and I, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Jesus became flesh and blood. What does that mean? It means he became mortal, and it it means that he took on the ability to die, that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil. If you remember in verse 9, we saw, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels... For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. See, Jesus in his humanity, took on the ability to die. You say, why would Jesus take on the ability to die? Remember Philippians 2 and verse 8, don't turn there. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why would Jesus take on the ability to die? He would take on the ability to die that he could take on death. Do You understand what I just said? Jesus needed to conquer death. And in order to do that, he had to be able to meet death. He had to be able to, 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 to experience death. So he took on the ability to die that he might die and meet death and beat up death and conquer death. That's what the Bible says. Look at verse 14. Last part of verse 14 that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. I wish I had time. I'm not, I don't have time. I'm just going to have to skip a bunch of this. The Bible says that Satan had the keys of death. The Bible says that Jesus, when he conquered death, he conquered the devil. He conquered uh, the power of death. I'll just read these for you. If you'd like to jot these down for your notes, you can do that. 1 John 3.8, He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. 2 Timothy 1.10, But is now made manifest by the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light, through the gospel 1st Corinthians 15 the famous resurrection chapter verse 54 says for uh, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption. This mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. you understand that Jesus came and became a man, that he might reach man, and he became a man, that he might conquer death, that you and I might never die. He conquered Satan, and he conquered death. He beat Satan, and he beat death. Let me give you the last point. Go back to Hebrews 2, or if you're there, look at verse 16. I said, number one, through humanity, Jesus could connect to mankind. I said, number two, through humanity, Jesus could conquer mortality. And then, number three, through humanity, Jesus could care as a mediator. Look at verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. Remember, he's better than the angels. And he became a little lower than the angels. He did not take on the nature of angels. Angels have a different nature than human beings. They're a different type of being. They're angelic beings. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. This is telling us that Jesus became a descendant of Abraham. Now he's bringing this up for a reason And he says, Jesus became the descendant of Abraham, verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, let me just real quickly show you a verse uh, to, to help you understand this. Go to Galatians chapter 4 if you would. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. If you kept in Romans after Romans, you have 1st and 2nd Corinthians and then Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. And what, what, what the writer of Hebrews is explaining to the Hebrew Christians at this point He's answering this question, why was Jesus even born a Jew? Why was he born a Hebrew? What was the reason for that? And he's explaining the reason. He says in verse 16, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He's not saying that he took on him the nature of humanity, although he is saying that, but specifically he's saying he became the seed of Abraham or the descendant of Abraham. Obviously, there's a lot of things we could talk about there, the Abrahamic covenant, all those things. The Abrahamic Covenant, by the way, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's not fulfilled in a bunch of antichrist christ uh, synagogue of Satan believers. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's why the writer of Hebrews is telling us, he, became, he took on him the seed of Abraham, that he might be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. We're going to learn in the book of Hebrews that Jesus becomes the great high priest. But in order to do that, he had to be of the seed of Abraham. Look at Galatians 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, that's humanity, made under the law. See, not only did Jesus have to conquer death, he had to conquer the law. Because remember, we, I, I read it for you from 1 Corinthians 15, the strength of death is the law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. There is no sin, there is no death. So Jesus was born, He was made of a woman, and He was made under the law. He was made of the seed of Abraham, meaning that He was born under the law of the Mosaic law, that He might conquer the law. He kept the law, and He conquered the law. That's the answer to the question, that He might be a great high priest. You say, well, why should I care about that? Well, we're going to get into it in the book of Hebrews, but let me just quickly give you a thought on that, and we'll finish up. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 18. We see his ministry, that he became a descendant of Abraham so that he could become the high priest. That's his ministry. He is the high priest. But I want you to notice that we also see his credibility. Look at verse 18, Hebrews 2, 18. For in that he himself suffered being tempted, See, the Bible tells us that the reason that he became human is to reach mankind, to be that dazement between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He came to conquer mortality, to, to, to to meet death and conquer death, that we might be given eternal life. But then he also came for this ministry. Jesus could care for us as a mediator, he could care for us in his ministry. We see his ministry as a high priest, and we see the credibility. What makes him such a great high priest? That he himself has suffered being tempted in humanity. He was tempted, and you know the story of Jesus. He was tempted by Satan in humanity. He suffered. Isaiah fifty three tells us all about the sufferings of Christ. He lived the human life, and he was and and he suffered being tempted. Look at verse eighteen for. In that, he himself has suffered being tempted. You say, well, why should I care about that? Here's why. Because in that, he is able to succor them that are tempted. The word succor means to give assistance, support, aid. here's, Here's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us in verse 18. He suffered so he could succor. He suffered so that he could help. So that he could lend aid. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in Hebrews, but I want you to see it because it's all connected. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be done in in two minutes. Hebrews 4, look at verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. seeing then that we have a great high priest. That's his ministry. That is passed into the heavens. He's our heavenly brother. He's our heavenly high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Look at verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In school, you're taught to not use two, you know, double negatives, but the Bible can do whatever it wants. And it uses these double negatives, and I think it's beautiful how it's worded. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The idea is that we have a high priest. That has been touched with the feelings of our our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Here's what the Bible is saying. That Jesus was in all points tempted like you and I have been tempted. Jesus was in all points. He suffered like you and I have suffered. So whatever you've suffered, whatever pain you have, whatever you've gone through, whatever temptations, whatever humiliations, whatever victories, and whatever defeats, all of that, Jesus has experienced that. The only difference is when He experienced it, it was yet without sin. He was tempted without sin. He was betrayed without sin. He was lied about without sin. He was hurt without sin. He, he lived the human life without sin. And as a result, he is now an amazing high priest who knows and understands what you and I have gone through. So here's what the writer of Hebrews says, verse 16. With that, with that idea, he says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, through humanity, Jesus could connect with mankind. Through humanity, Jesus could conquer mortality. And through humanity, Jesus could care as a mediator. And he cares for you and for me, which is why the Bible says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what pain you have you're carrying, what burden you're carrying. But I can tell you this, that we have not in high priesthood cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And you and I have the ability to now, and Hebrews is going to develop this, the writer of Hebrews is going to develop this, That because he is a high priest, he has made us priests, and now we have the ability to come in boldly into the throne of grace and obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this is not just spiritual talk. The Bible is saying, whatever your burden is, take it to Jesus. Go to him in prayer. He knows what you've gone through. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows how you're feeling. And he can help you. I often think of this song. I'd like for us to sing it if it's okay. I'd like you to take your songbooks to page number 335. I often think about how little we use the power of prayer, but this is the idea. The idea is this that Jesus became a human being that he might mediate on our behalf. I just want you to I just want you to see these words. Because I feel like and this is kind of I often think about this song when I think of prayer and how little prayer we do. When I think of prayer and when I think about the fact that we often don't pray. I gave you the wrong, the wrong number, I think. I said 335. That's not what I wanted. I wanted what a friend we have in Jesus. Let me see if I can find it. If somebody knows it, tell me. 355? Thank you. 355, these uh, songbooks are all ripped up, 355, I just want you to notice these words, look at them, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer, and and, and here's a part that often convicts me, it's this, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Jesus became man to help us carry our burdens. He became our faithful high priest that we might go to him in time of need. But how often do we do it? How often do we go to him? What a friend we have in Jesus. What a brother we have in Jesus. What a faithful high priest we have in Jesus. Let's make sure we go to him in prayer. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this passage of scripture. The humanity of Christ. The fact that God would become man, that he might connect with us. Lord, we thank you for that. We love you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to utilize prayer to come boldly into the throne of grace. To obtain mercy and help in time of need. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.